So who's your king? The United States is a constitutional republic with an elected president and a bicameral legislature, so we don't have a reigning monarch. Now, King Charles reigns over the British Commonwealth, which includes the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, eight Caribbean islands, two in the South Pacific, and Belize. There are other European monarchs, most of whom, like Charles, are largely figureheads with little actual governing power. There is King Felipe of Belgium, Queen Margaretha II of Denmark, King Harold V of Norway, King Willem Alexander of the Netherlands, Felipe VI of Spain, Carl XVI Gustav of Sweden. All of these are hereditary monarchies. The various states of the Persian Gulf basically all have monarchies with varying degrees of authority. Monarchies are also popular in much of Asia. Japan, Thailand, Malaysia all have kings or emperors. And of course, I should point out that Pope Francis is the reigning monarch of the Vatican City State, which, as you may know, is less than two-tenths of a square mile in area. In many places today, these monarchies are vestiges of powers that have been given over to more democratic institutions. In other places, like Saudi Arabia, the royal family continues to rule in ways that consolidate their power and violate human rights and the rule of law. Thailand's King Vajiralongkorn has been married four times and in July of 2019 took a royal consort only to strip her of all ranks and titles just three months later. Uh, for most of us, I suspect, kings and monarchs seem antiquated or maybe a little dangerous. We would never want to invest lifelong unlimited power in one person or one office. We understand how badly power can corrupt, and we see it every day. For many years, the sort of king most people saw on this particular feast day, I suspect was triumphalistic, with lots of talk of thrones and dominions and majesty and power. And you can see that even in today's first reading from 2 Samuel, where David is anointed the king of Israel. David wasn't the first of Israel's kings, but he's always been regarded as the greatest of them. And at first, God told the prophets that his people did not need a king. And the people insisted. Why? For security. The nations around them had kings, and they wanted to feel secure. The prophets warned them that kings are dangerous, and that they would be taxed, oppressed, and drafted into their king's service. And all of that did come to pass. For all of his strength and military power, David did some terrible things. And Israel's subsequent kings would be progressively worse until the nation itself was divided and conquered. Throughout the scriptures, having a king has, generally speaking, been a disaster for God's people. So why do we celebrate the feast of Christ the King? Well, I think the answer is in the gospel. 
Christ the King isn't a triumphalistic king or a king of armies and wars or the king who rules by capricious commands. He's the king on the cross. He's the king who taught that to be ruler of all is to be the servant of all. And in today's gospel from Luke, he's offering the ultimate service, dying for our sins instead of saving himself. All three of the gospels that the church has chosen for this feast day function in this way. In year A, which we'll get next year, uh, we get the judgment scene from Matthew chapter 25, where the king separates the sheep from the goats, and the ones welcomed into the kingdom of heaven are the ones who recognized their king in the hungry and the thirsty and the refugees and those in prison. In year B, Jesus stands before Pilate and declares that his kingdom is not of this world. These gospels shatter our images of the king who lives in the castle exercising absolute authority over his subjects. What it leaves us is the king who sacrifices and who lives in the poor and the rejected, whose highest value is the truth and who lays down his life for us. That doesn't leave much room for triumphalism or imperialism or even for authority as we understand it. The Feast of Christ the King ought to make us a little bit uncomfortable, not only because we're uncomfortable with the metaphor of a king, but because we are still too comfortable with our own power and our own place in the hierarchies of our world. Part of our sinfulness is to think that as much as we dislike the idea of kingship, there's always that little temptation to think, you know, it might be okay if I was the king or the queen or whatever. But the Christ, the king of these gospels, challenges that temptation. And we're asked to follow the king that we see in the poor and the rejected, the criminal who stands before Pilate for threatening the status quo, and the king who died on the cross. This is, as you may know, the last Sunday of the church's year, and next week begins the season of Advent. That time of preparation asks us to get ready for the coming of our king, both the victorious Christ who comes at the end of time and the helpless infant that was born into our world 2,000 years ago. But we really begin that preparation today with the realization that power and glory as this world understands them are corrupt and temporary things. And instead, we follow the one whose reign begins with service and compassion and justice. That's Christ, our King.